In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Think of a recent documentary you've loved. The slow pan over still photos, the tight cue of period music, the subtle shift from a personal story to a historical one. These techniques have become so associated with Ken Burns that the word Burnsian is found everywhere, from The New Yorker to The Times of Israel. And like any great artist, Burns has created a whole studio of talent to carry out his vision. In 1989, he brought on board the brilliant Lynn Novick, with whom he just wrapped up 10 years of work on PBS's The Vietnam War. The series wades deep into every possible angle of a conflict still seared into the American consciousness. I invited them on the show to talk about Vietnam, their paths to filmmaking, and their ridiculously packed production schedule. We are planned out to 2030, and we can waste most of your time telling you even the thumbnail descriptions of all the things we're doing on the American Revolution and Ernest Hemingway and Muhammad Ali and the history of Reconstruction, uh, LBJ and civil rights. The possibilities must be infinite. Is budget a factor? No. Who's the decider? No. I'm How does the, that work? I'm the decider so far. How do you settle on Hemingway as opposed to Fitzgerald so, or any so, of the So here's what it is. It's sort of like friends and love and intimacy. We have lots of ideas, as you're saying. The cauldrons are all boiling over with potential projects. And we think about them. We're making lists all the time. But they're ideas. They're the ping pong balls of the lottery. But every once in a while, something goes down in here. So, for example, Jeff Ward, our principal writer, and Lynn and I have been talking about Hemingway. Jeff and I have been talking since the 80s. Hemingway's been on short lists of things. And then finally, it's just the gut feeling. It comes down and says, yes, it's time to do Hemingway. Hemingway. Yeah. Um, Now, Lynn, I want to ask you, tell me what film and uh, you studied American studies at Yale? Yeah. Were your parents in the biz at all? No, not at all. They're both sort of more in science and math. My father's a biologist. My mother's a neuropsychologist. So I'm kind of the outlier in the family, actually. What does a neuropsychologist do? She does evaluations of kids with learning issues and tries to figure out what's going on in their brains and then helps figure out how to fix it. And you went to Yale for? Uh, I thought I was going to be pre-med, actually, and that lasted about six weeks. And I sort of checked it out. you broke your parents' heart. <laughs> yes, exactly. They, and when I sort of evolved into, you know, realizing I wanted to work in documentary film, they kept saying, okay, but how's that going to work? Where are, you, where are you going to actually work? Are you ever going to have a job? What are you going to do with yourself? But, when are you going to move out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was some of that, too. So where did it begin for you in terms of when you, you, you studied American studies at Yale? I did. Did you go to graduate school? I didn't. I thought about going to film school, but at the time that I graduated, most film schools really focused on narrative, scripted 
um, you know, Docs weren't what they are now. No, they yeah, weren't. You couldn't really study it in film school, I don't think. We're so. going to talk about that, that change. Yeah. But when you get out of Yale, so what's the path to? It was a very uh, nonlinear path. Um, I worked for a while as a research assistant at the Smithsonian uh, Museum of American History, and then I realized I didn't want to be a historian and work in a museum, and I wanted to work on historical documentaries, and I eventually got an internship at WNET here and got some some production experience. I freelanced. I worked for Bill Moyers for several years. What was that like? That was wonderful. It was, I was going to graduate school, basically, in how to do this. And then, luckily for me, I figured out that Ken Burns was working on a film on the Civil War. And I just waited until I heard that he might have an opening. And then I applied. And that was in 1989. What do you think he hired you for? What do you think Ken Burns saw in you? That's a very good question. I, I, I guess maybe... Um, I was passionate and interested, and I wanted to learn. I will say those things. And I, I think having worked with Bill Moyers helped a little bit. Yeah, of ooh, course. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, go, <laughs> tell us your Moyers. So, so, uh, well, first of all, no, where did you go to college? I went to Hampshire College. Right. Uh, in a and what did you study? Film and photography yeah. every single surprise, semester, surprise. every single semester, every single semester. And started, we did organize a little film company in the college to do uh, completely at-cost films for nonprofits uh, in Western Massachusetts. And so following that model, I started— uh, a company called Florentine Films after I graduated, and the first one was one on the Brooklyn Bridge. I moved out in Manhattan up to up to the wilds of New Hampshire then. But we were finishing the Civil War. It was done or a month or two from locking, and I had lost an associate producer uh, who just sort of very unceremoniously left, and a friend suggested that I talk to Lynn, and she said, you know, I'd love this job. The you know, all of her credentials seemed perfect, and, and but she was going to get married and go on her honeymoon. She wouldn't be able to start till mid-July. I said, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. We take the long view. This this project <laughs> had taken five and a half years. And uh, she was going to attend to some rights issues for the photographs and other things. And the previous person told me they thought it would be done the following February. By August 15th, she had it done. And we've been working together ever since. Fantastic. Like a month. So. Yeah, well. So Moyers was more, shall we say, agit prop than <clears throat> a lot of other people. He was a very political guy, obviously. He was. Uh, the projects I worked with him on, Joseph Campbell's series, was not really political. Of it was sort of existential right. in a really deep way about just— Philosophical. Yeah. And that was surprising to me that I, when I was working on it, I thought, gee, I don't know if American people are going to want to watch— six or eight hours of talking about philosophy and the meaning of life and, and turned out to be a huge hit because there's such a hunger for that kind of conversation. Um, just watching Bill work and seeing how he related to the people that he spoke to and the kind of quality that he expected of all the producers that work there was a great education. For you, Ken, I'll go with you first and then Lynn. What did Vietnam mean to you personally at the advent of the project? So I always pick things I don't know about and want to know about. Rather than telling you what I know, I'd rather share with you our process of discovery. So two films, Baseball, which Lynn and I uh, produced together uh, in, in the 90s. I thought I knew something because I'd been wild about baseball from the moment I could remember anything. And I instantly found out how little I knew. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was present for the first teaching against the war and demonstrations, and I had a high draft number, but it was very a very politically active campus. Very politically active campus and a politically active father, and, you know, I, I was just thought, well, I know everything about it, and 
basically for 10 and a half years, it was daily humiliation of what we didn't know. And what's so great is that, to basically lose your baggage early on, lose that conventional wisdom that actually is wrong, and then be able to avail ourselves in a very clean way of more than 40 years of new scholarship in every single department so that we got excited because we'd assembled all these scholars there. And as we're working, first with proposals, then with early scripts, then with advanced scripts, then with assemblies and rough cuts and fine cuts, they're all blown away, not by what they've contributed, which is significant, but what their colleagues have contributed because they don't know that stuff. And then all the other colleagues are saying the same thing about their stuff. And you begin to realize, wow, we are aggregating in here the latest stuff. You know, the centrality of Ho Chi Minh to the leadership of the, the Vietnam. We Wonderful just assume, section of the film. You know, we, we explaining. Assume, so we, we, we have in episode one, it turns out it's another guy who's really in charge and he'll be a character in all 10 episodes, but everybody presumed Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh and LF is going to win. And Nobody asked another question about that. I know Lynn will agree with me. When Americans talk about Vietnam, we just talk about ourselves. And that right. what, what we needed That's to do movie. was to triangulate with all the other perspectives, not just the enemy. This isn't just Clint Eastwood right. doing postcards and all of that sort of stuff. It's finding out what the civilians felt, the enemy felt, the Viet Cong felt, but then our, our, our allies, the South Vietnamese, who get treated like, you know what, all the time, and their civilians and their protesters, as well as all the servicemen that we did in the air or Marines or Army guys, and everybody all the way out to deserters and draft dodgers across the American spectrum. And if you then do that, then the p- kind of political dialectic loses its, its force because you realize that more than one truth could obtain at any given moment. For my money, what I walked away with that project was that Ho Chi Minh was a man who understood his people and yes. what they wanted yes. and what he needed more than his American counterparts from the moment Kennedy is assassinated to the moment that Nixon resigns. Yes. You go, there's a line from 63 all the way down to 73. There's 10 years there. Ho was out of power when? He died in 69, and by 64, he had essentially neutralized himself uh, on the Politburo from there on in. He had opposed the Tet Offensive vehemently in his secretary. So to restate that, throughout the 50s and then on to the early 60s, and you get to some point in this project and go, my God, I'm just numb. My next project's going to be about the Boy Scouts. No, because Lynn came in and we looked at each other and realized we had to do Vietnam inviting exactly what you just talked about. The Second World War, our first episode is called A Necessary War. But what would happen if you took a war in which— there's not a positive, you know, we didn't unite the union and free slaves. We didn't end the world of militarism and fascism. And Americans particularly are susceptible to the disease of argument that their second world war, they call it the good war. It's obviously not the good war. 60 million people died. That's not a good war. You know, you can't do that. History is not a parlor game when there are more PTSD candidates from World War II than there are in Vietnam. We just didn't have a name and a convenient level. So you're saying in the sense that Vietnam was no worse than the other wars. That's hugely important. It was divisive. I think um, it is different than the other wars before then that we paid attention to in that we didn't win, and it was so divisive while it was going on, and we never could talk about it like Ken is saying. So I always think of it sort of like this childhood trauma, say, that we never talked about and just never dealt with, and it just keeps cooking away underneath the surface. And so that's why the film was the most challenging thing we've ever done. And like Ken is saying, just the chance to bring people together to kind of start over. Okay, something terrible happened. We've never really figured it out. We don't know what it was. We don't know what was going on in Vietnam. Maybe if we would just let people tell us their story and put it together, 
we could find out some sort of deeper truths that we've never really acknowledged. Well, obviously, the Vietnam War has been covered in, you know, to a fairly well in film, in books, in Broadway musicals. Do you start by immersing yourself in what other people have done or you just tune that out completely? It's a really tough one because you don't want to imitate what anybody else has done. Right. And we've certainly carry around in all of our heads the Hollywood versions of the Vietnam War. So we didn't have to immerse ourselves. They're just there, present. Apocalypse Now, Platoon, The Deer Hunter. We're very familiar with those. But for documentaries that have been done, and there have been some great ones, and there have been some very sort of dated things that were great at their time, we sort of check them at the door. Our colleagues have to look at all that for, for footage and stills. So for research purposes, we have to go through everything and see what's out there. I go to a monastery and take a <laughs> vow of silence. I will not look at anything mm-hmm. anywhere, nothing and just try to make sure that right. have a complete, even though I've seen this, as Lynn said, even though I've seen this stuff, I need to be free of it. I'm always impressed that Lynn can... It's difficult. I read a lot, too. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, we, we do have a big team of people helping us. So I read in an interview you did with somebody where you mentioned a, a board of advisors that you consult. Describe the board of advisors and what their role is. Yeah, so we, we put together the foremost experts on this subject, whatever film we're working on. So in this particular case... So you have an ad hoc uh, yes. consultants like that? People, some, some, some we have a a couple of people who come on more than one project because they just understand American history and pretty much can talk about it and understand it in every... Bill Luxenberg is a 90-something-year-old. Yeah. 94, 95-year-old historian, the dean of American historians. He's We don't leave home without him. But, he was with my right. Huey Long film back right. in the early 80s, <laughs> and I think he's just done the majority of the film since. But for this case, we also wanted um, veterans. We wanted Vietnamese historians. We wanted military historians. We wanted social historians, pop culture, um, Hispanic-American, African-American... Tapes. Presidential audio, right? So it's it's a wide range, actually, probably 20 people by the time we collect all these different experts. Some of them read scripts and then don't come to screenings. Some come to screenings and haven't read a script. Some are there every step of the way. And their roles kind of evolve over time as the film evolves. Well, you, you, you remember in another interview, you also referenced how you had the uh, Vietnamese producer Ho... Ho Deng Hoa. Ho Deng Hoa. And uh, you mentioned, said in another project you did where you were interviewing the famous Japanese baseball player and you couldn't keep up with him and you couldn't answer a follow-up. <laughs> so you decided you wanted yeah. to approach things differently. Yes. But, but you also mentioned that you were talking to some of these men in the, the Vietnamese counterparts and you were kind of taken with how gracious they were talking about people you knew they hated and despised and had fought in war. Very different from the American point of view, because when Americans talk about these things, it's often very heated. We had both, you know, we had people on both sides that talked about their hatred for the enemy. But it's interesting now that they're at the age that they're at, and many of them are grandfathers and have survived, right. they're most curious. Like, we we were able, before the film came out, to share with Senator McCain, who we did not interview and consciously told him Early on in the project, we weren't going to interview him or Carrie or Kissinger or Jane Ken Burns, Fonda. who craves heroes. That must no, have been a big— because, No, 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 because we, they're still polishing their apple in the public sphere, and we didn't want any of that. We want people that you didn't know. Right. And then they would be characters, Carrie and, and McCain and Kissinger and, and They'd Fonda. They'd be referred to. But they couldn't try to put their thumb on the scale in any way. He got it immediately. But when it was done, done, he invited us in for what was just going to be a few minutes. All he wanted to watch, and he kept extending it, and the aide said, no, you've got to go, was he wanted to watch them, the other side. And what you begin to realize is that at that point of combat, which is where human beings are at their very worst, they're really good at killing the right. other people and avoiding right. being killed, or all this stuff happens. It's hell. What, what, it's hell. Yeah. And we couldn't even possibly imagine what it's like. And we've tried so hard in so many films from Civil War through World War II mm-hmm. into this. But they recognize each other. 
And they, that recognition is transcendent. And so he wants to see what they're saying. And what they're saying sounds so exactly like our Marines and our Army guys. And so you have a Marine, for example, Carmarlantis, who says, you know, we're not the dominant species on the planet because we're nice, right? And people complain that, oh, the military turns young men into killing machines. I'd suggest it's only finishing school. On the other side, we have an NVA young soldier now, a kind of beloved David McCullough, Yoda uh, figure in, in, in their culture. And he says, um, humans are the only animals that kill when they're not hungry. I've been in the jungle. I spent time in the jungle. Even the tiger does not kill when it's not hungry. And so what you find on the front line is a kind of similarity. And so for the North Vietnamese, nobody had asked them these questions before because remember, this is the singular victory of the people, capital P. So they'd never heard about losses. They've never seen their dead bodies scooped up with, uh, you know, you know, bulldozers and things like that. And no one said, what did you feel? Who did you lose? What did your mother worry about? Which is the questions we in a kind of egocentric, narcissistic Western society kind of promote and so when you hear them, they break down and cry just like our guys do, and they get outraged just like our guys do. And it's a pretty, it's a wonderful affirmation of what we sort of loosely talk about and don't really believe is a common humanity. I think as, as this has evolved in my life, I'm somebody that as a boy on Long Island, uh, they named an award in my high school uh, for the most improved athlete. It was called the Roland Florio Award, who died two weeks before he was meant to come home. He was all ready to get discharged, and he was the brother of a family that lived down the block from us, and the, and the sisters in the family were our babysitters. And as this has evolved in my life, watching films of which Full Metal Jacket is my favorite because you distill it down to the, the indefatigability of the, of the enemy. Mm-hmm. It's a girl with a gun in a building. And just, she's going to take it all the way down the line and kill as many of the, her enemies as she can and, you and met defend her, her. And you met her in mm-hmm. real life in the Tet Offensive. A couple of times, right. Right? Right. right? I mean, you met that counterpart from Full Metal Jacket, but it really right. a real person. But for me, what, what I arrive at, the point I arrive at, is, is, is not just Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers, McNamara. We knew it was wrong at the time, not in hindsight. We knew it was wrong. They knew it was a mistake in the middle of it. What it also takes me to is, is the evolution of the modern military. People are embedded. There's a limited transparency. There's no draft. It's professional military. Oh. The 10-part documentary I'd like to see Lynn Novick and Ken Burns do is the history of the U.S. military and how we've arrived where we are now, where on one hand, you believe even though a hornet's nest has been kicked, maybe we kicked it. Maybe we should have, maybe we shouldn't in the Middle East. But the point of the matter is we've kicked it. It's kicked. And if we walk away, we can't walk away. We have to engage somewhere. Some Where we engage and how is always the question. But the idea that we can just hold up our tent and come home is, is ridiculous. But, but I want to ask you both. Oh, yeah, we, I, so I go ahead. I want to go back to one thing that I just in this question of heroes, because it's come up a few times about what's a hero. And this film taught us that there's lots of different ways to be a hero and situation like this. And they're certainly incredibly heroic soldiers on both sides and, you know, sacrifice for other people and are brave and do incredible things and sometimes suffer terribly for it. But they're also the heroes who went to Canada and the heroes who protested the war and the heroes who revealed what was wrong about the war, you know, and the reporters who tried to cover it and the Vietnamese who didn't believe that what their government was doing was right. So it just, it sort of upended our notion, conventional wisdom of what's a hero, which made deal with this really horrendous tragedy over 10 years 
inspiring for us, actually. I was overcome by uh, Rory Kennedy's movie, mm-hmm. Last Days of Vietnam, when she talks about that guy that was the guy that got everybody out of there. Oh, Stuart Harrington. That's it, that's it, that's yeah. It. Um, he's tortured Stuart Harrington by the people they left behind to this day, yeah, you know. What a and movie. and like he personally feels he's carrying the weight of the decisions made by people in Washington. My next question for you is um, are you a filmmaker or a journalist? And, 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 That's and, and, an easy one, I think. Me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we definitely consider ourselves filmmakers and not journalists. But have you picked up some kind of, you've obviously you've acquired some journalistic education along the way. We try to be really scrupulous about what we think is true and what the facts are, so, the way a journalist would. But we really want distance to be able to evaluate which right. facts are important. So Philip Graham, who owned the Washington right. Post, um, said that uh, journalism is the first rough draft of history. It's a great thing. But what history is able to do is come back and triangulate, take advantage of the perspective the passage of time has permitted us to get uh, clearer sources. So we do participate in certain journalistic ethics, but we're filmmakers. We are interested in telling a story. Have you ever had a situation where you're doing a project and you have someone who is significant to the project, even integral, and then you find out that they weren't necessarily on the up and up with you? And what do you do? It happens. In war, you have to be particularly careful because the fish gets bigger the farther away from the lake you get. And there are people who feel a certain amount of survivor's guilt who then have to expand their story. And because war is 10, 15 percent combat and the rest is support. People who were in support often gild the lily a little bit. So we always make sure that we can at least place them at the place where they are based on their military record at that day. Then we have to look them in the eye and say, is this story believable? And that's why one the of the things the veterans do, right. the advisors do, is they go, oh, that's BS. That, 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 that didn't happen. And we do it. And sometimes we found people that were, as you say, central parts of our narrative that we just felt that we felt more comfortable if we could pair them back a little bit. Well, people who come right out and say, John Kerry lied. He didn't do uh-huh. any of the things he did that won him the Purple Heart. Some people argue it cost him the presidency, that he didn't respond adequately to that, right. nothing happened. Well, this is what happens when we politicize. We permit that relatively superficial but so intoxicating and so seductive world of the binary of the yes and no. And so you can't do that with Vietnam. You can't do that and tell an accurate story because it, it just sort of sets itself against itself. You know, so it's we, we that's why we took ourselves out of that contemporary debate about, say, Kerry. It's interesting to hear you talk now about, you know, what the political DNA is or isn't in some of these projects. And you privately have been somewhat political. You've given money to the Democratic Party, correct? Um, in mid-June of 2016, I came out warning people about what I felt were the supreme existential dangers of the then presumed Republican nominee. And that was the first time I've ever done it. That kind of went viral. You did the video for Teddy Kennedy's memorial, correct? Yeah, but completely anonymously and didn't charge a cent and didn't want to be involved in anything other than somebody that I had known and respected. Do, do, I don't do, list do. that film on my resume. I just, I, it was right. something that no, I... But I'm saying you have a democratic yeah, well, yeah, political I'm de- DNA, oh, yeah. but, but what I would think it's masterful. This may be one of the greatest things about Ken Burns' filmmaking, is you've kept the politics out of well, it, in I spite think, of your own. I think the integrity of the films is inseparable from our, collectively, not just Lynn, but the films I do with other producers. Um, we've, we've made that decision to leave it 
uh, out of it because it is so binary. It is so superficial. It is so easy to just yeah. it's lazy. the ones. It's, it's lazy. It's, in the end, it is. I mean, there's a place for political films. And yeah. that's an important part of the tradition of documentary films that we have advocacy. We still have a First Amendment. People can say, I believe it's this way. I'm trying. There's too much pluribus, uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. <laughs> said, and not enough unum. So we actually just started a website called Unum, which is trying to curate and take the scenes from all these films to say, look, we have shared stories. We're not trying to exclude anybody. When you add an African dimension to a civil war story, you're not excluding other people. Well, I mean, I, this can't be helped. You're Ken Burns, so you must walk around all day. People going, excuse me, uh, could you do a story all the time. Uh, on the history of pizza? Yeah, all the I time. I think that people don't yeah. understand how important pizza is. But, you know, getting to this idea of your own personal ethic. Did you have to do some kind of political <laughs> lobotomizing in order to do the work you do effectively? What happened for you in your politics? Uh, you know, I, I feel very grateful that my parents gave me a great education. Being critical and thinking about what happened and being honest are important. And that's been a huge sort of existential challenge to sit down with people. You do it all the time. A lot of people don't do it. Talk to someone that you don't necessarily agree with and hear where they're coming from. Think about why. Think about who they are. Understand the documentary character like you would a narrative character. Yeah. The minute you look at that character in, in, in literature, whether it's Williams or Faulkner or Shakespeare, and you look at them and you study them, you go, wow, that's interesting. Yes. You meet the person in real exactly. life, you're like, get away from me. Yeah. You mentioned Brown v. Board of Education 1954. I can't help but suggest that would be a really great uh, topic for the Supreme a, Court. The court. It's wonderful. And, and in fact, in our lives. so sometimes these... Uh, formulations get a little bit expository and didactic. So what I often say is that a lot of times our films will cover this. Like we've got, obviously, the Dred Scott decision in this film. We've got Plessy versus Ferguson in five films. We've got, you know, Brown it's versus Ford. in one of your films. So right. what happens is instead of just segregating it into Philadelphia with the, with the wigs and the green felt tables with the white quill pens— <laughs> Exactly. You you have the Constitution operating in all of the stories that we're telling, whether it's Jackie Rob Jackie Robinson, our film on Jackie Robinson that I made with my daughter Sarah Burns and her husband, the filmmaker David McMahon, a few years ago. That is as much the story of Jackie Robinson taking away some of the myths that everybody has promoted. Even though you said he know. was your Lincoln. So he was an amazing Lincoln. Lincoln and was Lincoln during the Civil War and in the Civil Rights Movement. You said Jackie Robinson yeah, was the he, Lincoln. He's a Republican who can't stand Jack Kennedy, won't look him in the eye. Kennedy says, well, you know, we don't know too many Negroes. And he goes, you're going to have to know Negroes. And then Kennedy has his come to Jesus. By the time of the Civil Rights Act, Jackie's with Rockefeller, still a Republican, but watches the Goldwater Tide, votes for Johnson. And you can can see in the arc of part two of Jackie Robinson the whole history of modern political America, which <laughs> is the switch of the Republican Party founded in 1854 in Ripon, Wisconsin, with one thing in mind, the emancipation of the slave, a hypocrisy that cannot exist any longer in this republic. And now they become the harbor, the safe haven for white supremacists and racists. And, and it is just, it's a stunning Flip And the Dixiecrats, who the Northern Democrats looked the other way and counted on their votes and to carry a solid South, went the other way. But the Democratic Party has been liberated from the tyranny of those people. Does he call you up at 3 o'clock in the morning and do this? I got this idea. And he does like a 20-minute un- one-breath monologue. We try not to send texts before 6 a.m. At the core of Burns and Novick's documentaries is a belief in listening deeply and understanding all sides. 
But as Burns has said, activist filmmaking has its place too. One of the best examples to my mind is Josh Fox's Gasland, about fracking for natural gas in Pennsylvania. I spoke to Josh after the release of the film. Their priorities are not about protecting groundwater or, or keeping this situation non-toxic. That couldn't be further from their priorities. Their priority is to get the gas out of the ground and make their money. Hear the rest of my interview with Josh Fox at heresthething.org. When we come back, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick on Vietnam, Trump, and why he'd never leave PBS for Netflix. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash Bits. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. One of Ken Burns' few overt activism projects was lobbying presidents to pardon the great boxer Jack Johnson. Burns thinks the conviction was driven by racism, but after over 10 years, he pretty much gave up. Then, advised by Sylvester Stallone, Donald Trump made it happen in May 2018. You mentioned Jack Johnson, and I'm going to think, you must be a huge Trump fan now. Well, <laughs> Didn't you lead a movement? Yeah, to- I've been working with uh, Senator McCain since 2006, and we couldn't get W to move, and for very obvious reasons. The, oh, we tried Bush, really yeah. hard. And, and then for Obama, you know, I, put, I lifted up on the accelerator because I knew it was a no-win situation for him. What this black president is going to pardon an African-American who married white women and beat them. And, and explain to of, people what, what, the, what Johnson's would need to be pardoned for. Yeah, so Johnson is the first African-American heavyweight champion, which 
which was kind of, he won on a mistake. Nobody had intended to ever allow a black man into the ring to possibly show in those days the superiority of the races was determined in some ways by who was the most powerful. Mm -hmm. So this is a real just mano a mano thing, and he won. Great white hope. And then Mm -hmm. they sent a series of white hopes up against him. And then on July 4th, 1910, they sent up Jim Jeffries, the greatest of all white hope. Johnson demolished him. Johnson demolished him, and there were white on black um, riots all across the United States. So then there were a few more fights, but basically everybody said, how do we stop this guy? This is a decade, uh, 1905 to 1915, when more African-Americans were lynched than in any other time. And yet he's living exactly the way he wants to, dating women and multiple women and marrying white women. And so they hooked, they they got him ex post facto, meaning they applied a law Mm -hmm. that had been passed after he'd done this thing, which is illegal. It's unconstitutional. on, On the Mann Act. And basically for crossing state lines with immoral purposes. So, but she wasn't underage. She no. wasn't underage. She was a prostitute. Of course, for people who are not familiar with the, the he made period a film of history. called Unforgivable Blackness, The Rise and Fall exactly. of Jackler Johnson, which is from a quote by W.E.B. Du Bois, a great black scholar, who said, look, you know, boxing's in disfavor, and Johnson hasn't done anything that other ballplayers and sportsmen, meaning boxers, and even senators haven't done. It all comes down then to his unforgivable blackness. So in this, so at least in the context of the single issue thing with Jack Johnson, Trump, as far as you're concerned, is the greatest president of the <laughs> modern century. So let me put this very delicacy. We support <laughs> the pardon, but let's understand that the underlying issues about Jack Johnson are about race. And we're dealing with a human being who has a dismal record on race. We actually made a film on the Central Park Five in which these are five innocent children, children, right, that did not commit the Central Park jogger rape. We know that. They've been exonerated. Right. But they went to jail, and he took out full-page ads saying, bring back the death penalty. Right. And doubled down on it the day of the Access Hollywood tape. So this is, you know, a tweet from he has a conversation with Sylvester Stallone. If he does it, that's great. You want justice to prevail. And we could in that just get regard. Sylvester Stallone to get behind the Central Park Five. Yes, exactly. <laughs> then, he could, then he could call uh, Trump, and we'd be done. Now here's my big, gooey, deep fried, Uh-oh. smothered in cheese, Larry <laughs> King question: What's a Ken Burns movie? Because I have Michael. Want me to give you my answer? Yeah, sure. Burns's films are he's like Spielberg. You're the Spielberg of documentary film. Big canvases, big themes, big budgets, comparatively speaking. You think about Spielberg, you think, God, doesn't he ever want to do a movie for like two million bucks and it's Edward Norton and Ray mm-hmm. Fiennes trapped in an elevator? It's like one set, great dialogue. What's one you want to make that you can't? Or you Nothing. Won't. But you're right. We do bite off. And I have had many opportunities to talk to Steven Spielberg about this. And we look at each other and we go... We do the same thing. <laughs> exactly. You can make stuff up. I can't. What's a Lynn Novick movie? I, I think we're plowing in the same field. It's true. We could pick something very small, but it ends up that these projects take a long time, enormous amount of effort and sort of psychic energy. And so you want to pick something that you're going to really care about spending time on. So it's American history for sure, but it's also these sort of deep questions about the human condition. It sounds very pretentious to say that, but when you're looking at individual artists like Ernest Hemingway or Frank Lloyd Wright, it's how do people create and live and get their work done. I think what we're really interested in ultimately is our country stands for something really profound and inspiring and beautiful, which is that we're all equal and we have this capacity to be great. And yet from the day we were founded, from before that, we are so far away from that thing. And in that space is where we want to hang out 
and explore. And it's very painful, and it's also really inspiring. I would just suggest, too, that these big themes, these big stories, the constituent building blocks are these intimate bottom-up stories, more often than not, of people that you don't know. And so, like William Blake, we're finding the world in a grain of sand. And that changes, particularizes, literally atomizes the way you tell these stories. So it isn't just the 30,000-feet great man history of the presidency and generals and wars. It's something that is bottom-up. And you and you touch on the African-American experience, which is in almost every film we've made. And the failure, as Lynn is talking about, to live up to our creed. And when you learn from so-called ordinary people, then it sort of mitigates the tension of the big idea, Right. And somewhere in there, you can begin to negotiate some of these bigger questions about who we are, where we fail our promise, where that exceptionalism is. So it's possible in Vietnam, which is a horrible failure, to find unbelievable pockets of love and beauty and redemption. How does the current political climate in this country now make you feel about that? I think we're right now in the greatest existential threat, certainly since World War II and the Depression. You find that how? I would just find that an assault on institutions and values, and because of the way media is and the assault internet, which we thought of our as our friend, now yeah. we don't know what's true, what's and we, the ability to manipulate images and voices now and video give us the possibility for a kind of and to say whatever you want and disseminate it and no call it facts. And we've no. stayed in public broadcasting consciously, a kind of some people would suggest some creaky old form, but in fact is extraordinarily. How elastic. has that changed during the arc of your career? Not much. We well, just, but, but I happen to know. I mean, everybody knows who studied this, that Reagan stacked the CPB with yeah. more conservative people. To, yeah. they, they wanted doing – they had documentaries about uh, uh, the oil business. Yeah, but one of his appointees <clears throat> is the longtime head of it now, and she's been one of our greatest supporters. And the last thing they want to do is cross over any kind of line, which is why I've stayed there. The unstated agreement is you don't make me look bad, I won't make you look bad. I wouldn't even say <laughs> that. I mean, I came out with a film called, cry, called cry. Unforgivable Blackness, right. and they <clears throat> swallowed hard. They wanted to be called Jack Johnson, the rise and fall of an <laughs> You know, like that. Good point. Good but, point. But, but, but so I feel sort of fortunate. I think we all feel very, very yeah. grateful for it. But we're able to make the films that we do. And look what happened with Vietnam. We uh, accumulated just in the fall its first sets of showings, 39 million people. And then they had 13 million streams, which means this makes it one of the biggest things to pass through the PBS system ever. This is a truth that people don't understand. After the big three networks plus Fox, the next highest network trading with Fox News is PBS, which means we're already able to activate a huge segment of the American population, which means old media is not so dead. We're actually able to approximate the unum that we all just talk about and want to, and want to, you know, nod our head to. It, it actually, we can. Right. In a documentary film like this, you can have people have a conversation that you can't really put in a room together or you couldn't, you know, that they would argue. So they'd start yelling at each other. And in a documentary, we can interview you and we can interview you and then we can put you together and you can have a civilized right. conversation. And yeah. we're kind of modeling a kind of civil dialogue or discourse that our country really lacks. It's not Jerry Springer. It's not Jerry Springer. <laughs> and PBS is the one of the places Springer. right where people kind of come, they're expecting that. It's all with PBS. It's all with PBS. And I'm assuming there must have been many, many times that the Netflixes of the world and these other independents have said to you, come with us, come work with us, come you know, leave PBS. That's your childhood. Yeah. Well, it's been throughout networks, studios, 
more recently. Dangling a lot of money in your face. Yeah, but you know what it is, is that I I moved out of New York in 79, the summer of 79, because I had finished most of the shooting on my first film, Brooklyn Bridge, had no idea how I was going to make it into a film, but I realized I needed to get a job to survive in New York, like a real job, and that if I'd put that film away, I'd still be in New York, and, you know, like the ad guy who woke up and didn't write the novel that he always wanted. So I moved to this tiny little rural town where I could live for nothing, and that model has informed the spirit, at least, if not precisely the letter of what we've done ever since, that we've had a kind of independence, we've stayed there. Yes, that all that is attractive, but it comes with certain things. Suits can come in and say, longer, shorter, mm-hmm. more sexy, less sexy, it's the more violent, right? and it's just... You're, I, like, you're like every other great filmmaker. I do not want to ever sit... I, I, even when somebody even has the whiff of, wouldn't it be better if you didn't do it this... No focus <laughs> groups. And you know what I'm not good at is because I also get, in a separate way, like people I really admire, like Errol Morris and Spike Lee, who do commercials, mm-hmm. like I would shrivel up to nothing if someone said, we want you to do like a commercial for XYZ in the Ken Burns style. I, and we're going to pay you this. You this, don't do that. This Fort Knox. I cannot. I don't do have that. that problem. I cannot. Do I've got that. four kids. Yeah. I'm hosting a game show on I'm ABC all... Friday nights on ABC. <laughs> yeah, I admire you for that ability I to need do the that. Dough. I can't do that. But I live in New Hampshire, and we're fine. It, it took ten and a half years. Somebody was sitting with Richard Plepler and me, and saying, "He's the head of HBO." Of he said, "Well, why don't you fund Ken?" And he stops, and I said, "Because Richard wouldn't give us thirty million dollars and ten and a half years to do this. Right. The model." there, as generous and elastic as it is at HBO, doesn't permit it. Even though the PBS brand uh, is no less quality-wise, it's just a little more obscured because the marketplace is so diverse now and so fractured. That's exactly right. It is just as good as HBO. Our Civil War came out in 1990 when there were maybe 20 other stations, right? Right. And then we've gone through all of this cable revolution and then the internet revolution. So we've got... 1,500 cable channels and millions and millions of internet possibilities at any given moment. And what is that that bit of audience marching through from 1990? 39 million people for civil wars. But what did we get in, in the aggregated of a few different showings in the fall of Vietnam? 39 million. Is Florentine headquartered up in New Hampshire? Is yeah. that, where, is that the, where the ILM mm-hmm. is? Does all the stuff flow through there? That's where you yeah. cut. Yeah. That's, do, you, do you have some super space station set up there where you cut everything and do everything? Yeah, we have a, a little house off the town green that we got in 1991. But there's a— How a, little? Uh, it's, it's, 85,000 square feet? What is <laughs> no, it? no, no, no. It's, it's the former knitting mill that you took it over? Was a, it was a doctor's house. You're you're contemplating, uh, or you're going to do Ali. What do you think you're going to bring to? I mean, Ali's like the Beatles. He's been covered from every angle. What we, are you going to do? We're going to bring Ali, right? Because here's I made a film on Huey Long in the mid '80s, right? And part of my proposal was we're going to intercut pieces of Broderick Crawford's performance in the Academy Award-winning motion picture All the King's Man. We, we put him next to the real speeches of Huey Long. It just diminished. Now, I thought Will Smith, that was a, you know, that was not a perfect film. The no, first 25 minutes of, of that things is one of the greatest openings of a yeah. modern American movie that Michael Mann did. It's just, it's a it was fantastic a tough movie. task they had. But here's mm-hmm. what happens. In all the Ali stuff, and there's lots of Ali stuff, it's basically this fight or it's that fight. But we want to start, as we do, 
with the French coming in 1858 to Da Nang. Let's tell the whole story. So we want to start in Louisville. Louisville. And, and, and tell the whole story up to the end. That's what my podcast and is about, origins. Is you mm-hmm. have to do I this. And what that. happens is we are now, you know, biting off smaller and smaller chunks and sometimes doing extraordinary things with it. I'm, I'm not uh, proscribing any other way of doing it. We just think that there is room for us to learn a lot more about, as you say, a person who would be impossible to duplicate. So why try to duplicate him? Let's just go to the archives, hear him spar with Cosell, see the fights. I can't wait. You know, and people at the end who were there when, you know, most of us were not, you know, we understood the power of that shaky uh, lighting of the torch in Atlanta. But but who was there? Who who went back to the hotel room with him that night? You know? Um, I have for Lynn. How does the Me Too movement play out for you? Uh, I mean, I don't mean to be so topical, oh, but no, I, are you any thoughts about that in terms of making a film? Well, I, I mean, it's been really uh, overwhelming to see what's happened mm-hmm. in our world in the last year and a half and how much the stories we've been hearing resonate for everyone I know. Just it's a wide you know, range. Being interrupted, just not being taken seriously, having people comment on how you look. We've had, I've had all kinds of inappropriate comments in my time, and I've never you really have. talked about it. Sure, but you even just, in public television. Even in public television, perfectly. The men in know, public television are like the men everywhere else. It's shocking to say, but yes, I think it's part of human relations and how we've all been, I think, conditioned to just ignore that and just keep going. And I, I frankly, would take offense at someone saying, "Oh, you know." What does it feel like to be a woman filmmaker? I want to be taken seriously as a filmmaker. Was it hard for you to be as a woman filmmaker in the beginning? No. It really it wasn't. wasn't. No, I don't no. think so. In the documentary world, in Even the before you landed world, in Florentine, what was it like in the early days? Yeah, I don't—I really don't have any memory Sheila of, Nivens came on the show when she yeah. was—I want to say, in the extreme, mm. on mic, in the show, she was very forthcoming. She said, the guy put his hand in the 60s or whatever, the late 60s. She goes, yeah. the guy put his hand on my, on my leg. Right, so, I mean, their generation, Crazy. I think, really paid their dues, to be honest. Right. She's quite a bit older than me, and I think in that yes. time, there were very few women in the world of news and journalism. and Almost you know, none. They, right? so Nancy they, Dickerson. Right. right. For those who recall yes. Nancy Dickerson. John Dickerson's John's mom. mom. Exactly. Right. Um, and uh, what's her name? Povich. Shirley Povich, who we interviewed for her baseball film. His daughter, Lynn Povich, was a pioneering reporter at Newsday, Newsweek who sued. I mean, I've heard these these pioneering women and even the women 10 years older than me working at CBS 60 Minutes. I've heard incredible stories. I really have not experienced anything criminal or egregious or anything I would call harassment. But I've well, certainly been objectified. I think every woman who walks the earth has been. And the way I was brought up and the way I just sort of functioned was, okay, I'm going to do my job. Yeah, And I have. I mean, you know, and I I think for women coming after me, though, and I have a daughter who's 25, almost 26, I don't want that to be her world. Is she in the biz? No, she wants, she's getting out of law school. She finally went to medical, oh, she went to law school. I thought she finally went to medical school. (laughs) Someone in that family skips generations. Made your parents happy. (laughs) We're hoping. The granddaughter. Somebody will. But anyway, you know, I just, I think it's an exciting time, actually, that some of this kind of conversation is happening. I think that's healthy. I think it has gone way too far in some ways, of convicting people without any kind of due process. And I think that's a problem. Did you want to say something? Well, I have four daughters. So, you know, we're working with one of uh, Lynn's counterparts, another producing partner, Dayton Duncan, and I have been working for many years on a film about country music. And what's so interesting is that women, from the very, very beginning, take a central role in this story. Well before rock and roll was dealing with some issues about sort of spousal abuse and marital rape and divorce and taking the pill, 
Loretta Lynn is in the mid-60s. This is stuff that Grace Slick is not doing or Joni Mitchell is not going to do for another decade, but there she is. And you got Patsy Cline before her, and all of these stories are there in American history. It's what we choose to show and the, the ability for the patriarchy to limit and narrow the story. We've just widened the story, and nothing's diminished. It gets more dimensional, and the same with race, the same with labor, the same with, you know— complications. There's undertow. And my real brother from another uh, mother, Wynton Marsalis, said in our jazz film, said that sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. And we have been... Hard to... We have, been, mm-hmm. we have been working on trying to honor that in all the situations since he said that in the mid-90s to us. Now, are you Ken Burns? Are you a collector privately? What does Ken Burns collect? Quilts, American quilts uh, by women uh, who tell the story, I think, of, of in an elemental way who we are, the warp and the wolf. And in that, these are sometimes anonymous or collective efforts. Uh, an Amish piece from the 1830s. A hundred years later, Piet Mondrian is doing these geometrical, loud, geometrical, bright colors, which is the epitome of modernism. And I go, excuse me, I've got a shaker quilt from a hundred years before that can sit next to any Piet Mondrian painting. And let me show this to you. It's like on fire. And then it just belies the kinds of borders that we make. They don't exist for the artists. And the borders we make between people based on color of the skin or regions or whether they're blue voting or red voting or whether they're gay or they're straight, all of these superimposed distinctions don't actually exist. And it is possible to embrace a complex narrative. Now, I have been immersed in the world of documentary film for the past almost decade because David Nugent, the artistic director of the Hamptons Film Festival, and I are partners. But docs have become so ubiquitous now and so desired. You know, it's thrilling. Uh, I remember uh, an article that uh, Vincent Canby wrote in 1985 uh, about the releases of documentary that year. I had a film out on Huey Long. Uh, Fred Wiseman had a cinema verite. There was a thing called Streetwise, which was really flirting with uh, dramatic films uh, and using real people. And Ross McElwee did uh, Sherman's March, self-referential film. He said the documentary was too narrow a word. And I think why we're drawn to it today is that we have all these outlets that need to fill stuff out. But more importantly, our plots are not tired anymore. Right? Steven's going to invest everything with meaning. But these plots, we know it. You know what it's like to go into a movie and go, she's dead. Yeah. She's not going to survive this yeah. film. And and documentaries, even when you know it's going to turn out the way you know it did, you don't think it's going to happen, right? You go to Ford's theater and you think, maybe this time the gun's going to jam. Have you ever put yourself in anything you've done? Yeah, in one film, in baseball, right. I was interviewing uh, Bill Lee, uh, the spaceman, the Boston Red Sox pitcher right. who, you know, people, when he was traded to Canadian team, he would find, uh, you know, tin foil. He said, why are people throwing tinfoil right, at me, right, and right. it was hash. You know? okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but anyway, I, I said, what's your best pitch? And you needed it to set up his unbelievable The one band. time you put yourself in? Yeah. One. Yeah. And you, and you felt you had to do it? Yeah, it was just really necessary. We debated about it, though. We had yeah. a big, huge conversation. Yeah. And you're, you have one as well. I have one. It's a World War II veteran, Sid yeah. Phillips, and I was asking him, um, you know, did you have a hard time kind of keeping your language clean when you came home? Because you know how Marines talk. And he was this very courtly Southern gentleman. And he said, you know, in the Marines, we only use but one adjective. And when I came home, it was really, really hard to not use that adjective at the dinner table. And so you hear me say, what was it? And he says, I can't tell you. My wife will come down from heaven and hit me on the head. But it's kind of a conceit if you think about it. 
I mean, we were doing an event the other day and someone said, was it intentional when you cut to this picture after that person said something? And <laughs> as if it was some kind of accident yeah. that these things happen. I mean, every single thing in the film is intentional. Hyper-intentional. Right. So we don't put ourselves in, but we're in every frame. Filmmakers Lynn Novick and Ken Burns. Their latest documentary is The Vietnam War. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. I'm Eric Galindo, the host of Wild. It's a new podcast where I get to talk to incredible people like comedian Chris Garcia about what it's like to become a father in the middle of the pandemic. So wild. I consciously was like, I can't have a kid right now. Like, it's just too much. And so I waited till I felt comfortable enough to, like, have a kid now. During a pandemic at the end of the world. Listen to Wild by LA Studios on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.